You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Metamorphosis. My name is Faye. And my name is Donovan. Here on the Metamorphosis podcast, we are interviewing various physicians across BC with the aim of learning more about their specialties and helping medical students navigate their medical careers. Our guest today is Dr. Kessler. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Dr. Kessler is an infectious disease specialist. She does general infectious diseases, consults, and the teaching service at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver. Her subspecialty is HIV, where she works at the Oak Tree Clinic, the Provincial Referral Center for Women and Children Living with HIV in British Columbia. So Dr. Kessler, could you just tell us a little bit about your journey to medicine, what got you interested in it? Sure. Um, So journey to medicine came not unlike many of you, where I was interested in helping people, but I also love science and biology, right? That sounds very cliche. I actually, when I was in my 20s, I'm from the United States, full disclosure, and I was um, working in politics, environmental politics in San Francisco, and I was getting demoralized and was thinking about alternative paths to changing the world. (laughs) (laughs) And I think I really came at medicine from sort of a social medicine, social justice standpoint. I wanted to do something that was going to make a difference at a bigger scale, as well as individual people's lives. And because I loved science and I was good at it, I felt like medicine was going to be the best route to make those kinds of changes. So it really came from me from sort of a political social justice standpoint. Um, And then I had already graduated from college at that point. I actually studied wildlife ecology and environmental studies in college. And um, so I had to go back and get some of my prerequisites from medical school. And then I got into medical school and yeah. Did you do your training in the States? I did. I did my medical school at University of Wisconsin, and I did my internal medicine residency at University of Colorado, as well as my infectious diseases fellowship. So, um, yeah, I'm trained in the U.S., and U.S. trained doctors can work in Canada. We have reciprocity with that. Um, And I'm here in Canada. I've had a long path to get here. I worked in Botswana for a number of years. I've done a lot of global health work, um, worked in Haiti and Rwanda, um, but have landed in Canada largely because it's, for somebody like myself, it's extremely difficult to work in the United States where there is no nationalized health program, where not everybody has access to care. I think Canada should be very proud of its national health program. Um, It doesn't always work perfectly. People have to sometimes wait for um, a knee replacement or a hip replacement. We have too few specialists. We have too few family physicians. But overall, it works pretty well, and it works for everybody. Everybody has access. And for me, it's ethically extremely important to work in that kind of setting, and it's one of the reasons why I'm here and not practicing in the United States. So coming at it from that social justice lens, did you also know that it was internal medicine, infectious disease you wanted to do from the start, or what pointed you in that direction? No, that's a great question. Um, I actually started medical school thinking I was going to be an OB-GYN. I was 100% sure that I was going to go to Africa and do fistula repairs for women who'd had trauma, pelvic trauma. Um, 
And it turns out, so what happens in medical school is the first two years are great. You know, you're in, at least when I was training, there was not as much clinical work in the first two years. You would be paired with a family physician, but you wouldn't be on the wards or really seeing any actual medicine um, until third year. I don't think it's all that different for you guys. And when I got into my third year rotation in OB-GYN, I was very disappointed to see that I didn't like delivering babies. And it's very difficult to do obstetrics and gynecology if you don't like delivering babies. I think it's not, I mean, it's a joyful thing. It's great. Um, But for me, the stress of having something go wrong, I mean, there's most births, the vast majority of births are perfectly healthy and require no intervention whatsoever. But the ones that need help are so stressful. And the permission to be wrong is zero. And so for me, I didn't I didn't like that part of it. Um, Yeah, I just and I think the culture for me, the culture of obstetrics and gynecology was not the culture that I saw myself in. And that's one of the things that I think you guys are really going to see in your third and fourth year is that you will learn whether are you a people doctor Are you the type of doctor who really wants to interact with people and be with people and care about all of their social circumstances? Or are you a not so much people doctor? Are you more of a radiologist? Are you a radiation oncologist? Are you more of a technician type of doctor? And either one is okay, but you just have to figure out what you are. Um, There's thinking specialties and doing specialties. Um, I would say that internal medicine is the ultimate thinking specialty very intellectual and it's like solving mysteries and surgery is much more or surgery is much more of a doing specialty. I would say that some aspects of internal medicine like intensive care or emergency medicine are very doing specialties. Um, And you just have to figure out, you'll see what culture you fit into. Are you, do you feel comfortable in a surgery culture? Is that that's where you feel at home, or are you going to feel at home in pediatrics? You really need to be seeing the little people because if you don't see the little people, you won't be happy. You know, you'll learn that in third and fourth year. I did. And for me, it was medicine. I wasn't even thinking of infectious diseases at that point. I was still thinking I was going to do general internal medicine. And in the States, that's a little bit different than it is here. And in the States, uh, there are a lot of internists who are doing primary care practice, especially in urban areas. Um, here, internal medicine is really a hospital specialty. And so it feels different. I mean, there are hospitalists and it's a hospital specialty in the U.S. too, but there's a broader way that internists work in the U.S. So I think I was still thinking I was going to do um, urban internal medicine medically. And then I was very involved in global health work. So I worked for years in Haiti on every vacation I had and during summer vacations. And I was working in a small clinic, um, rural Haiti. And I think I decided that I, as, as my mind was sort of expanding around this, I was thinking, you know what, I really need to, back to the social justice piece again, I really need to, be engaged with the most, the diseases that are most likely to kill people around the world and are preventable and are also tied to poverty. And so that's when, and and working overseas, you definitely get that. You know that 
malaria, HIV, tuberculosis, diarrheal illnesses, pneumonia in under fives are what is killing people around the world. And I felt that I wanted to be working with those diseases, not just from an intellectual standpoint, but also at more of a public health level too. So that's kind of what finally led me to infectious diseases as a specialty. Mm -hmm. And that's a nice thing about ID is that you really, you can do, it can be extremely technical. You can do a big overlap with microbiology or antimicrobial stewardship, but you can also have this great public health overlap too and epidemiology and work with diseases of global importance. Anyway, infections of global importance, Mm -hmm. I should say. Our accidents are disease of global importance, too. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. Could you kind of just explain exactly what an infectious disease specialist does? Mm -hmm. What kind of work do you do? Super different, depending upon what your subspecialty is. So what I do, 80% of my time is clinic work where I do... Um, I see women living with HIV and I'm their doctor primarily. Um, So I do their internal medicine work as well. I do both, but that's more of a longitudinal clinical outpatient practice. And that's lovely because you develop really close relationships with people over time. I mean, when your patients have trouble, something goes wrong, they die. I mean, it really affects you. It's a it's it's like having your patients become sort of part of your family in some ways. The another 20 percent of my time is here at St. Paul's Hospital, where I do the infectious diseases consult service. And that's where, you know, I'm running around like crazy all day. Right now, I have 38 patients on my service um, where you take consults on infections throughout the hospital, whether it's the surgery service or internal medicine service or the OB-GYN service, they have an infection that they need help sorting out. And these usually tend to be more complicated infections because things like basic pneumonia or urinary tract infection, you know, the primary doctor can sort that out. They're trained to do that. Whereas if you have a complicated intra-abdominal infection or you have endocarditis, which is an infection of the heart valves, or you have a complicated bloodstream infection or an ICU infection, usually you need an infectious diseases specialist to help give you advice about the antimicrobials that you want to choose and how to achieve cure of the infection. So that's a teaching service. So I do a lot of teaching, as you guys know. Um, I do, every time I'm on service here, we have a fellow in infectious diseases, a resident, sometimes medical students, usually in your fourth year. And um, so that's a teaching service, it's quite busy, but I welcome anybody who wants to join us on rounds. Um, And then I do the teaching at the UBC Medical School. So I'm the system lead for infectious diseases and so, Um, the way that you guys learn infectious diseases throughout your first, really, I guess your four years of medical school, I'm heavily involved in that. And then I also work at the TB clinic. Um, So I I love tuberculosis as a, um, I mean, I don't love it. I wish people didn't have tuberculosis, but it's a really, I would say HIV and TB are really my subspecialties in ID. And when I lived in Botswana, I was doing a lot of drug-resistant TB work and TB-HIV co-infection work there. And so I, yeah, I, I still work at the TB clinic here now. So I think there's a big interest among a lot of medical students in the international work you're describing. So could you tell us a bit about how you got into that and what you ended up doing? Sure. Um, 
So I started in my first year of medical school. I was paired with a family physician in Wisconsin who was um, with another group of surgeons, ophthalmologists, and family physicians in her community had been just starting to go to a place in rural Haiti where there was no organized medical care and were involved in doing sort of two to four week trips where they would see people in the community with different medical conditions. It was almost like a set up mobile medical camp. Over the years, so I got involved in it that way. And over the years, I spent a lot of time with that group going on my spring breaks, on my summer vacations, or at least the summer vacation that you have between first and second year, you know, and doing elective time there. And I did that all the way up until after I finished my internal medicine residency. So it was really eight years that I was involved in that project. And over that eight year period of time, they had some good success. They built a clinic. They developed, they had an, they developed an operating room and a regular ophthalmology program. They had a healthcare worker training program where we trained local lay healthcare workers um, to manage the clinic when there were no physicians or nurses there. Um, they, developed a water project in the community. There's a lot of really good stuff Mm -hmm. going on. And I think as an example of a small localized effort, it was a good one. But the problem with these kinds of projects is sustainability and really needing to build a program that is owned by the local host country and is staffed by people from the community and that there's a sense of ownership over the project in the local community. Mm-hmm. And Haiti um, is very challenged, um, both from a resource, from a resource um, limited setting standpoint, but also from heavy, deep, entrenched corruption and absence of systems to deliver anything. So it's just a huge uphill battle and it's it's very complicated. And I saw that over the years that I was working there. Um, I spent a summer working in Tanzania. I did the London School of Hygiene Trot Med program um, in my fourth year of internal medicine. And um, that was great. It's a three month intensive program in London where you learn tropical medicine and global health stuff. Um, It is an amazing program and anyone who's interested in tropical medicine should do it. There's a similar program called the Gorgas program that's in Peru. Um, But I personally love the London School program. I think it was great. And through that program, my husband and I, um, my husband is also, he's an emergency medicine physician and he's also involved in, or has historically been involved in a lot of global health work. Um, We both went to Tanzania to work for a summer in a rural hospital in Tanzania, which we were essentially the two doctors running the hospital, which was a, a really good experience, but again, just extremely challenging and and I think really showed me the limitations of working in clinical settings in the sense of you're coming, you're arriving, you're providing medical care, but what are you doing beyond that? You know, you need to, the, the most important thing is training and developing local infrastructure and training local healthcare workers to do that work because you're, once you leave, 
who's going to be there, who's going to be carrying on. And I think that is that sustainability piece, that local ownership piece is absolutely critical in global health. And so we we were in Tanzania. We were part of a USAID project then um, to develop medical school or after the the genocide in Rwanda, medical training in Rwanda ground to a halt and there weren't doctors. There just weren't physicians anymore in the country. And so it took a number of years to um, get a medical school back up and running again. And so we got involved in the teaching of family medicine in that. And and I was teaching infectious diseases at that time there, but my husband was teaching um, more general medicine and urgent care medicine um, in that effort. And I think it was right around that time. Let's see, I was, I had my first child then. I was, we were in Rwanda. I was seven months pregnant with my next kid. And I felt, I really felt like I was done doing short-term work. It's just, it's just a drop in the bucket. And I was getting really done with the short-term two weeks, four weeks, a month, you know, And so we decided to move to Botswana. Um, The reason it was Botswana was because HIV and TB are my specialties and HIV is 40% of the population in Botswana and tuberculosis is the number one opportunistic infection and source of mortality for people living with HIV in Botswana. So we ended up going to Botswana right after I finished my infectious diseases fellowship. And we lived there for four years and my husband, Um, started the emergency medicine program at their new medical school and worked for, um, was head of emergency medicine at the the hospital. And I was working, I ran two TB HIV clinics where a lot of drug resistant TB, all the drug resistant TB cases in the country were managed. And I worked with developing the local physicians and nurses to be able to handle drug-resistant TB and complicated cases of HIV tuberculosis. And then I also did a lot of work with the Ministry of Health and writing guidelines. And I think that's a great example of what you can do with infectious diseases. Like, yeah, I did clinical work when I was there, but my role was so much more teaching, writing guidelines, figuring out the drug-resistant TB guidelines for the country. I mean, doing those sorts of things is what you can do. It's much more public health. It's much more about really, you know, how do we use limited resources in the most efficient way possible to gain the best health outcomes for a population? That's a really different thing than sitting down with an individual patient and figuring out what's best for them. And so when you work overseas, if you don't have that public health background or you don't have that lens that you're looking for or through, I think, yeah, you're just a drop in the bucket. The best way to make change is through public health. Mm -hmm. That's great because I feel like a lot of medical students go in wanting to make that big difference. And a lot of I know a lot of our classmates are interested in global health. Mm -hmm. However, I think infectious disease maybe isn't a super well-known specialty. Mm. So I think hearing that is... Oh, it's interesting. I would say over, if you want to get involved in high-level global health work, probably infectious diseases is a really good specialty to go into for that, but you also need to get a public health degree. The combination of an MD, MPH, even better, a PhD in epidemiology, that's what you really need because you're going to get into a hospital in Africa and everything you've learned about how to manage hypertension or everything you've learned about how to um, manage chest pain 
in our highly medicalized, resource-rich environment is going to be right out the window. You've got to be able to think through what's the local epidemiology of disease that I have here? What is the biggest like? You don't have the diagnostic tests. You don't have the infrastructure to be able to support this stuff. You've got to build algorithms or how you're going to care for people when you can't diagnose the condition. And if so, you have something that looks like pneumonia, hopefully you have a chest X-ray. But if you don't even have a chest X-ray, you have to rely on your physical exam. And then you have to say, okay, I'm gonna start this patient empirically on this antibiotic. And if it doesn't work in a few days, then I'm gonna start this antibiotic. And it's unsatisfying, you know, at some level, but it's also very challenging. Um, it's, it's really figuring out, again, how to work in an environment where there are very few resources, mm -hmm. but to get the best gains for everybody. That's, yeah, that's exactly something I'm interested in is you talking about you know, we have a training here where we're obviously quite resource rich. And so what was it like trying to go from, you know, you're trained in North America where everything is available comparatively all the time to, you know, somewhere like Botswana. How did you, how did you learn to deal with that scarcity of resources? Is there something if for someone who's interested in international medicine, is there something you would recommend so that they could learn to work in a place that doesn't have the things that we have? I think the, Again, I cannot recommend highly enough a training in public health. Mm -hmm. It's a really different way of looking at medicine than the way we learn it in medical school. And I think if you're interested in working in a resource limited setting, you are obligated to develop a public health lens from which you are operating. Um, I think that so one of the things that you learn very quickly is you really have to go to the primary literature and figure out what is already known about the diseases that exist in that area. Example, you have, you're going to take care of people living with HIV in Botswana. It's a lot of people with HIV. Meningitis in patients who have HIV, depending upon the CD4 count, has a whole different differential diagnosis than someone who has a high CD4 count or is not living with HIV. So knowing that you go to the literature and you figure out what is known about the top causes of meningitis in an HIV positive patient with a CD4 count less than 200 in Southern Africa. And you review the literature. And what you quickly find is that people in South Africa have, and Zimbabwe have done tons of studies. And what we know is that the top three causes are number one, cryptococcal meningitis, number two, tuberculosis, a close second, and number three, bacterial meningitis, like a distant third. That's important information to know because when the patient comes in with headache and meningismus and he's HIV positive, you need to, and you want to do your, say, hopefully you have the access to a lumbar puncture tray. If you can do a lumbar puncture, great. But if you can't, you probably need to start the patient on crypto, empiric cryptococcal meningitis treatment, even if you don't have access to a diagnostic test. So it's, that's a very quick example. And then you can build those algorithms. And we did that in Botswana. We're like, okay, do we have a CT scanner or not? Okay, do we have a lumbar ability to do lumbar puncture or not? And you just build that into your algorithm. And then you check a chest X-ray if you have the ability to do that because many people who have tuberculosis will have TB meningitis at the same time. So there's, and then you can try using cefotaxime or ceftriaxone, whatever antibiotic you have available on your hospital formulary, you try that one. And if there's no response, 
it's probably not bacterial meningitis. Boom, you're done with that off. Check that off the differential. Now move on and do empiric TB treatment. So you have to, you have to arm yourself with the literature that's out there from the site you're going to. Everybody who goes and works in a hospital in Uganda or wherever, Thailand or wherever you're going, you have an obligation to know what the diseases are you're likely to see and what the likely, what is the top causes of pneumonia or meningitis in that setting, especially if you're dealing with an HIV population. You know, you just Mm -hmm. know that this is knowable information. Other people have done this research. Um, And I think it's really important to know, again, WHO is an amazing source of information for this stuff. So, for instance, if you're working in a clinic in Thailand and you have somebody who comes in with genital ulcer disease, you're not going to be able to do a syphilis test. You're not going to probably have diagnostics at your disposal, but you can check, okay, painless ulcer or not painless. That leads you down a different path with algorithm. Painful ulcer, think herpes, put them on acyclovir if you have that. Painless ulcer, syphilis, penicillin. You know, like there's ways you can think through even without having a single diagnostic test and a very limited formulary of antibiotics. You have to put it together and figure out what you're going to do. You have to make sense of the madness. So that's an example. I'd say you have to have a public health lens and you have to know what the diseases are in your community and have a plan for how you're going to manage the patient who comes in with undifferentiated fever, a genital ulcer, a cough and a fever or whatever, based on the lack of diagnostic tests and the treatments that you have available to you. Yeah, that's absolutely wow. fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's so different, I feel like, because we're just taught, like, these are the the guidelines, this is exactly what you do. Yeah, that's individualized medicine in a resource-rich environment, which is totally appropriate for this environment. Although, although we, there's no such thing as a resource unlimited environment for medicine. And an example in Canada is the MRI machine. So the MRI machine, if you bought an MRI machine, the cost is already sunk into that. You've already paid for that machine. But now you have to pay radiologists to read the MRI scans. And that's what costs money about MRIs. And that's why we limit MRIs. You still have to build an algorithm here. British Columbia has done this. Who gets an MRI? Again, not because the machine doesn't exist and isn't running 24 hours a day with people. It's paying the radiologist to read the report or read the scan um, and make a report and put his or her name on that thing. So who gets an urgent MRI? Who doesn't? What are the clinical signs and symptoms that lead into that? So those kinds of things are alive and well here in Canada. Right now, I have a patient in the hospital who has carbapenemase producing organism. Essentially, it is an E. coli that is 100% resistant to every antibiotic that is tested. So, and this is a patient who's two weeks out from a renal transplant. So this patient has got to get special authority medication now to treat this urine, this complicated urinary tract infection, or his kidney's going to fail. Think about how much money Canada's already put into getting the renal transplant in the first place. And now this patient's going to die or lose the kidney because we can't treat the urinary tract infection because our bacteria is totally resistant. No. So I spend three hours having to get the medication, go through the special access program in Canada, talk to the drug company, get the medication to treat the patient. 
You know, it's like we are living in resource limited environments, even here in Canada. You want to pay for health care for everybody? You're going to have to make some choices. Mm -hmm. End of story. I think the U.S. operates as if they're not in a resource limited environment. They want to treat everybody as if they're not. But it's okay if you have Cadillac health insurance, but it's not okay for everybody who doesn't. Um, so you mentioned that you were kind of always interested in OBSGYN and then in third year, it kind of all made you change your mind. How did you rule out like all of the other options? You guys, you'll just see there's things you like and things you don't like. Are you a people person? Do you need to work with people um, or not so much? So anesthesiology is more limited in your people contact, radiology, pathology, those are areas of medicine where there's a lot of brain work involved, but it's not as much people interaction skills. Um, so I think I just was never really drawn to that. I, I did like surgery in the beginning. I think it's really satisfying to do suturing and do surgery. Um, I just, the culture of surgery to me was toxic. Um, and when I say toxic, what I mean by that is, oh my God, it's just unforgiving. It's very hard. Surgery is a hard path. And if you are, if you feel like you are called to be a surgeon, great. There are, we need amazing surgeons out there. It's just that it's a really, it's a tough road in terms of hours you're going to work, in terms of dedication, um, really not having time in your life for a lot of other things that might be important to you. I mean, I think, hey, medicine is a demanding profession no matter what. Mm -hmm. um, which I don't think medical students think as much about um, because, you know, you know, you're going to be a doctor, but in your 20s, you don't maybe you don't always have that. When am I going to have kids? What about a partner? Where do I want to live? What do I want my lifestyle to look like? Like those things are maybe not as front and center. I don't know. Maybe they are for your generation. They certainly weren't for mine. I think a little bit more for our class. I know people definitely consider lifestyle when they're making those decisions. Yeah, I mean, remember, I trained in a time when there were no, in the United States, there were no residency work hour requirements. We were, we would start in the hospital at six o'clock in the morning and you wouldn't sleep until six o'clock p.m. the next day. And that's might might be when you're walking out of the hospital, but only would you leave the hospital if everything is tucked in your patients. There was no, you're done in 12 hour shift. Um, and so if the internal medicine people were like that, you can imagine what surgery was like. So I, I really, I think I came, I came of age in medicine in that era, yeah. which is thank God that's not the same way it is now, but it's still extremely demanding. So, um, I think you just, in your guys, your third and fourth year, you will just, something will make sense to you. I think what gets hard is the people who are not sure between family medicine, internal medicine, that's a big, that's a big difference. Um, or that's a, that's a place where people feel like they might be interested in both or internal medicine, pediatrics, family medicine, because there's a lot of overlap in those things. I think Medicine is if you want to do a subspecialty training like cardiology, gastroenterology, nephrology, infectious diseases, you have to do internal medicine. You can't do that from family medicine. So if you think you may want to specialize, you have to do internal medicine. Family medicine is such a great specialty and we need way more family medicine trained people all over the world, including Canada. Um, 
it is you have to be comfortable knowing a little bit about a lot in family medicine. I think the other big divide, like are you people, person, doer, thinker, that sort of thing. The other big divide is, um, you know, how comfortable are you with knowing a little bit about a lot as opposed to knowing a lot about a little. So subspecialty training like infectious diseases, you know a lot about a little bit. I know a lot about TB. I know a ton about HIV, but I don't know so much about you know, how to treat GERD or hypertension now, or, you know, I don't really know that much about, I know nothing about how to treat kids. So you just, it's all about how much do you feel comfortable with your depth of knowledge on a daily basis doing medicine. And me, I'm kind of, I've learned about myself. I really like to know a lot about a little. Gives me a feeling of control, I guess. And even then, I don't feel like I know everything I need to know. So, yeah, I think you guys all you just kind of learn these things about yourself over time. But if you decide, if you are thinking, ah, I want to keep my options open. Internal medicine is a better way to keep your options open mm-hmm. in terms of subspecialty training further on. Mm-hmm. Do you mean opposed to family or opposed to yeah, surgery? As opposed to family. Okay. Because family medicine, once you do family medicine, there are things you can specialize in. You can get extra gynae specialty. You can get extra pediatric. You can get like an emergency medicine fellowship in family medicine. There's lots of things you can do, but you can't become a cardiologist. You can't become an infectious diseases specialist. Um if you are thinking along those lines, you're gonna need to do internal medicine as the gateway to those subspecialties. Surgery, general surgery is great. Um, You're never gonna become a neurosurgeon Mm -hmm. without doing general surgery first. You'd have to go into surgery as your your residency. Family medicine, it's just more, it's, it's just a totally different pathway. So what is your favorite part of being an infectious disease specialist? Um, the inel, uh, two things I would say, there's two things that are my favorite. I I think it's part of being a doctor, maybe not so much infectious diseases, but, um, number one, for me, infectious diseases is super interesting. It's interesting. I love that you can be, you can be interested in the biology of it, but then you have this, all these public health implications of it. Like I can be fascinated by cure science for HIV. Like how are we gonna cure HIV and what, how, what do we need to do to be able to cure HIV? That's super interesting, but you, can, you also have this disease you're working with that has enormous implications for the world, for people, um, for the way we see each other as people. I mean, you guys are know that HIV is one of the most highly stigmatized diseases there is that has tremendous impacts on people's psychology um, and politics. And yeah, so I think that I, I love that intersection between big public health concepts and the actual biology. So it's never boring, always very interesting to me. Um, it always feels relevant. That's the other thing is that I think with infectious diseases, especially when you're on consult service and you're called to do a consult, it always feels like you need to be there. You need to be bringing your attention to this problem and your time and energy to the problem. As opposed to sometimes in medicine, there are patients who come in who think they have disease but don't. And there's a lot of time and energy that go into 
um, relieving their anxiety that they don't have a disease or they don't have a, pro a true problem that we can do anything about. And so I think for me, I'm sure oncologists feel this way too. Like they don't get to see anybody who doesn't already have a diagnosis of cancer. So it's a hundred percent clear that what you're doing every day is totally relevant to health of that patient. And there's a real identifiable disease. Same with infectious disease. There's usually an identifiable disease that you're working with. Again, that kind of, I think, gets back to the control issue again. <laughs> but, um, but I think that the thing that I've learned more as I've gotten older, and I think it really takes, a friend of mine once said, it takes about, I don't want to scare you guys, but um, she said it takes about 10 years after residency to get your soul back again. And I think that there's something to that. I think what happens is, because you have to work so hard and working so hard in medical school and in residency and, tr and fellowship training, it just takes everything that you have to be able to continue doing the work and to show up in the morning and to learn as much as you possibly can about the disease so that you know how to treat it. But what gets lost in that oftentimes is the human component of medicine. And what I feel like I have learned so much in the last 10 years is that it is as important that I know how to treat somebody's cellulitis. Cellulitis is a skin and soft tissue infection. It's as important that I know how to treat that cellulitis is that I know how to walk in and talk to a patient as if they are a human being, make eye contact with them and have 10 minutes of a healing conversation with them. And that way that I approach them and that conversation and that treating them with dignity and recognizing their humanity, that is as healing for that patient as the antibiotic that I give them. And that is, I would not have been able to articulate that so clearly 10 years ago. I just, there's so much that goes into medicine and family medicine docs, they know this. They know this because this is their entire practice, you know, is that healing connection of just listening to somebody, giving them time, making eye contact and caring about them. Patients get it immediately, whether you care or not. They know immediately. And if you can bring that to the table, it's what people used to call or maybe still do a bedside manner. You have a good bedside manner. That's as important as you knowing the disease and how to treat it and how to diagnose mm -hmm. it. What is the most challenging part about being an infectious disease specialist? I guess I'd have two answers for that. I would, I would say there are, in, especially the, this is more for HIV. Um, it is heartbreaking that there, even though we are living in an era of treatment as prevention, and as we have plenty of great antiretroviral medications that can help people live a long and healthy life, that we are still dealing with so much stigma. I do not feel, I've been taking care of in many ways, people or been involved with the HIV community since the early 90s, like before we even had medication. And I feel that the stigma today hasn't really changed a lot and is so universal. And it doesn't matter where you live in the world. It's so stigmatized, especially for heterosexual people, especially for women and especially for heterosexual men. I think the gay community has been much better at normalizing HIV within the gay community. 
And so there's not the stigma. There's, it's not that there isn't stigma. It's just different. It's really, really different. Like I have patients who um, won't come to my clinic. I have to do all of their HIV treatment on the telephone and everything has to be super like they won't they don't want to go out and get their blood work done in a local lab. They have to always, you know, go to one specific lab. Maybe I have a patient who's in mission who drives all the way, you know, two hours away to do their lab, their labs because they don't want to do it in their local community. I mean, this is the kinds of lives people live with HIV when they are terrified that anybody would find out. So that feels so wrong to me and is so heartbreaking to me. And I would really, I, I feel like the kinds of interventions we need to do in public health um, and public education to reduce that stigma is really important. Um, I also have um, patients who refuse to take antiretroviral therapy for a variety of reasons and die because of that. You see a lot of overlap between addictions and HIV medicine. And so you know, I have the biggest source of mortality in my patients who are in their 40s over the last couple of years has been overdose and and or alcohol related disease. Um, so that's hard. That's hard. Seeing young people die for no good reason besides they are refusing to take medication that's important for them. They're dying of overdose or preventable causes. Um, and they and the ones who are living are living with tremendous stigma. But I think the other things that just about medicine is it's it's you've got to be really rigorous about your boundaries of work and personal life. And again, I think you guys will once you get out of your training and you have kids and families and other demands on your time, you'll see this more. You've just got to be rigorous about it because the work life balance. I mean, it's hard for anybody. It's not just doctors. But I think that that is really, really hard, especially with kids, hmm. especially for women. Mm -hmm. We've kind of, we've gotten close to it a couple of times and we're getting close mm. again. How is the lifestyle in your specialty? I think there are specialties where I think it's easier to manage the work-life balance. One of those is emergency medicine, which is what my husband does because it's shift work. And so anytime you do shift work, there's a start and a stop time. There's, you, you see a set of patients and you don't need to follow them up day in, day out for years. Um, and you have very clear boundaries between when you're at work and when you're not at work. Anybody who has a clinical practice of medicine, whether you're family medicine or infectious, infectious diseases, most infectious diseases docs don't have a longitudinal clinical practice unless they do HIV work. Most of most ID docs will see somebody in clinic just for the length of time they're treating their infection and then they say goodbye to them. But it's still a clinic. It's still a place where patients have lots of ongoing problems and need to call in and need to have a doctor there and somebody needs to be on call. And, you know, there's a lot of, um, I think those kinds of never ending clinical scenarios are some of the harder ones to develop the work life balance with shift work is, is easier. Um, that said, I can say even from, you know, my husband's emergency medicine, but when he's in that shift, there's no interviewing with, people. There's no taking the telephone call from the school saying your kid is sick, come pick them up. There's no, um, you, you're there and you've got, you're dealing with, you know, tremendously stressful eight hours. And for me in clinic or many family medicine docs, I'm sure, you know, the school calls and says your kid is sick, come pick them up. You have to cancel your patient, but you can cancel your patient and drive to the school to pick your kid up. Um, whereas you can't do that in the ICU, 
You can't do that if you have a full surgical schedule. You can't do that if you are in the emergency department. You have to pay somebody else to do that. So you have to have a nanny or you have to have a partner who's going to be home and available to do that stuff. But these are the considerations you have to, you know, you have to think through and everybody figures it out in their their own way, but it adds to stress. It adds to life stress. So I think thinking about how you want, how you envision you want your life to look like can help you choose a medical specialty. You know, if you're a, a young woman who's thinking about having children and maybe you want to have three or four kids, you're going to have to choose a medical specialty, I think, where either you work part-time, you have the ability to work part-time, you work three days a week as opposed to five days a week, or if you're going to choose a full-on specialty, you better have family close by or be able to pay for a nanny. Full stop. There's definitely a lot of, I think, stress surrounding that because I feel like I've talked to a lot of my female classmates and everyone's wondering, you know, when is the best time to have kids? Like before tick, 35. Tick, tick the clock. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. How do you personally manage the balance? Um, you know, specifically maybe with your partner who's also a doc. I think that's, you know, something that not everybody has. And I think that it might make your schedule even tougher to manage. I can say how you're supposed to manage it. Okay. <laughs> and I think it's, again, being rigorous about your boundaries, mm -hmm. being rigorous about what's important to you and what's not important to you. And I think one of the things that, and I'm only going to speak for women because I know this is, um, I can imagine that this is the case for men of your generation, like younger men who are especially female physician partners. Like there's probably more um, of this feeling amongst that generation. But I think what becomes very important for women as soon as they have children is it's pretty tough to think of anything in your life, even medicine, that is more important than your kids. And so you have to start making some decisions. Everything up until the time you had those kids has been about your, your career, what you wanna do with your career, all of that, and you've had full, um, unless you have a lot of complicated family life or complicated other situations in your life that maybe you're dealing with, for many of us, before you have children, it's kind of about you and your career and maybe your partner. And then all of a sudden you have these kids that are super important to you and as important to you as medicine is. And so now you have to make choices. So maybe you thought you were gonna be the head of transplant, surgery at VGH, but now you have two or three kids. And so now you have to think, you have to really think through your career goals. And are those same ambitious career goals that you had before? I mean, I'm not gonna be Sheryl Sandberg and say everybody just needs to lean in. You can lean in as long as you have family in town who are gonna take care of the kids, or you're gonna outsource the raising of your children to other people. And I'm just saying this is very honestly for me and the conversations that I have with all of my female friends who are physicians is that you are going to make some choices between what your career goals are going to be based on how involved in your children's life you plan to be. And I would suggest this should be the same for men as well. But we are still, I think, living in a world where the raising of children and the management of children is still very much left up to women. 
And so, and the decision-making around kids and all of their schools, everything. So I think this becomes more of a female, a gendered issue than um, I would like it to be. But I think that that piece of things, you need to be rigorous about thinking through what your priorities are, what you care about, what you don't care about. Some of the things you cared about when you were in your 20s may not be what you care about in your 40s. Um, and that's the way it should be, right? We're growing and developing. And I think there's all kinds of stuff I'll say about self-care, which you guys already know. The more you have connection to people outside of medicine, relationships with people who you don't talk about medicine with, um, make sh- making sure that you are doing meditation, um, have time off. And I mean real time off, time off where you're not writing a paper or you're not, you know, working on a lecture or doing something related to your work life, but real time off, Um, yoga, exercise, doing something with your life that is not medicine, whether you pick up surfing or you're going to become an artist or you do music or whatever it is, you've got to find those things that keep you sane. You know, for me, doing stuff with my kids and participating in their lives um, is an important antidote. Sure, it increases my stress because I have to find time to do it, but I have to do that stuff because if I was just all about medicine, one, I'd be boring, but two, I it, it doesn't carry you your whole life. I, I don't think it does. I think people need to be well-rounded and have lots of relationships and a web of connections in life besides just medicine. I know that's hard to imagine when you're going through the thick of your training because you need to be so focused on your training during this time. But once you're done and you're out in the world, these things become more relevant and important. That's an excellent place to end it. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for that advice. And thank you so much, Dr. Kessler. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Good luck to all of you. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 